Welcome to a special edition of the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. This is Sunday, September 27, 2020. We have never done a Sunday podcast before. Uh, we're not going to do one tomorrow because it is Yom Kippur. Uh, but we uh, were so stunned, I think, all of us by the uh, appearance of Amy Coney Barrett on the White House lawn being formally announced as the nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh, and the political and social implications of this nomination that we thought maybe we would get together and have a conversation about this. Us, of course, being associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, so, Christine. Yes. Give me a sense of the drama, not that it was very dramatic, but of the drama of the Amy Coney Barrett announcement and her speech and everything. Well, I think um, uh, those of us who've been following it closely have seen a lot of uh, scrambling on the, on the part of uh, Democrats and the left to, to, to try to find something that'll stick on Amy Coney Barrett, like, oh, she's, you know, she's stealing a seat that she shouldn't, she doesn't have a right to. Oh, she's a crazy handmaiden-like Catholic, you know, all of these things have been swirling for the last 48 hours. So she steps up onto the international stage and gives, uh, shows the world who she is. And she is amazing, quite frankly. She is, I mean, I, I have a, a, she's my generation. I'm very, very proud to say she's a Gen Xer. She has a large, wonderful, beautiful family who she brought with her. Um, that includes two kids who she adopted from Haiti. Um, she has a young son that has special needs. Um, but the first thing she said, one of the thing, two things struck me. One is that she said, I love America and I love the Constitution. And what it was startling to hear someone just say that in a way that was so um, honest and so uh, positive. She then went on to, to pay homage to Ru- Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, and, and understanding her legacy and basically showing, you know, saying I wouldn't be here with, if not for her. She completely shut down the the murmurings on the third wave feminist left that she was, you know, secretly hiding maids in the closet to take care of all her children, but not acknowledging it by giving a shout out to her babysitter. So one of our wonderful babysitters is here with us today. Um, she acknowledged her husband's supportive role in her life. And then she just outlined very, very succinctly what she hopes to do uh, as a justice. And Honestly, it was a, it was a speech about service, and that does seem to be her her approach to the job is is seeing herself as a public servant who loves this country and wants to do the best she can. And honestly, in the given the given the past couple of months of turmoil we've had in this country, that part alone was was deeply refreshing. So I just thought she she did an excellent job. There were there were some um, human moments, let's say. That mm-hmm. I was I was particularly uh, startled by. Of course, it's, it was a very considered, politically careful, beautifully crafted to answer a lot of implicit objections to her speech. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the stuff about her husband, which we can get to in a, a little bit. Um, but th- this, I believe, was the first time that we learned that her youngest Benjamin has Down syndrome. She had said in her hearing in 2018 that, uh, or 2017, that she had a special needs child that was everybody's favorite. But she didn't say Downs, uh, and uh, President Trump said Downs. And um, 
there was this moment where uh, Trump calls them all up to have the big photo op uh, after her speech. And uh, they all get up and her husband, Jesse, takes Benjamin's hand and they start to walk toward the podium and Benjamin doesn't want to go. And, and Jesse kind of tried to pull him a little bit and Benjamin like is pulling back. Jesse lets go Benjamin's hand and he runs back to the babysitter. Yeah. And, uh, and so the photo op that was wanted, which was the entirety of the Coney Barrett family with Trump and Melania did not in fact take place. And um, it was stunning somehow. I mean, this is something that I noticed out of the corner of my eye. I don't think any commentator mentioned it or anything like that, but it was like, these are real people. You know, this was too much for Benjamin to take. Well, think about the day he'd already had. He had to fly from South Bend and go, I mean, it's, that's a lot for a kid his age. Yeah. So, so they had a real moment with a real child in a real place She'll be and, the first the first woman with school age children, you know, with young children to ever serve on the high court if she's right. confirmed. Well, I mean, she she is what the third or the fourth? She's the fourth, or the fifth woman to serve on the court. If I have this right, right? O'Connor, Ginsburg, Kagan, Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. Am I missing anyone? So she would be the fifth woman on the court. And and this is a very striking thing because it gets to the whole Handmaid Tale that right, which is. Well, so my skipped over RBG. Oh, sorry. Did I skip over? <laughs> All right. Okay. So she's the sex. So, so, um, uh, Ginsburg and, and, and O'Connor were all, were already, already had ad- adult children by the time they got to the court. Uh, Sotomayor and Kagan are unmarried and never had kids. And here is Amy Coney Barrett with seven. And of course, one of the things that we heard in the in the wake of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death were all these tributes to Martin, her husband, and this notion that she could not have been who she was without the support of Martin Ginsburg, who basically subordinated her career to his own. Uh, they they did what was good for her. He did fine otherwise, but he knew that she was somebody whom he had to support and that she had a destiny um, and, and was this amazing spouse. Well, clearly, Jesse Barrett is exactly that person because you don't get to be a mother of seven children and, uh, you know, clerk and do this and do that and be a professor at Notre Dame and then become go on the court with a small child with Down syndrome um, where you have to ride the circuit and go from South Bend to Chicago once a week and do this and do that without a, a spouse who, as she said, wakes up every morning to say, is there anything I can do to make your day better? Is this guy going to get a second's credit? No. From the mainstream media and from the liberals who were who were crying over Martin Ginsburg, because this is the whole thing. It's like if you don't make an ideological point out of a good marriage, good marriages are structured pretty much the same whenever there are good marriages, you know, and they involve mutual support, mutual understanding and an understanding that what is good for one spouse is good for the other and all of that. And this is some, this, we are watching this in real time and what we're hearing or what we've been hearing and a line I think is probably going to be re- retired 
by noon today is that she's some kind of psychotic, uh, you know, uh, uh, handmaiden to her husband and therefore, you know, is, is trying, is going to bring about some, can I, can I just uh, say yeah. one thing about the handmaiden point, the people who are using that are clearly seculars who have no understanding of faith because being called uh, Mary, the mother of Christ was called the handmaiden. <laughs> right. I mean, this yeah. is it's actually a great honorific to be called a handmaiden. If you understand the tradition, yeah. it's not Margaret Atwood's book. And one other yeah. thing that I think is really important for people to understand about her adopted children um, is that she's already been attacked for by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, of all people, for being some sort of white colonizer for adopting uh, black children from Haiti. Um, so I, I, I would point our listeners, by the way, our, our friend and contributor uh, to the magazine, Naomi Riley, uh, has written a lot about interracial adoption. It's, a interestingly, it's an interesting issue in the social justice age. And she and Ian Rowe, the American Enterprise Institute, did a brief podcast last week talking a little bit about interracial adoption if people want to hear more about that particular issue it's fascinating uh, christina i'm sorry i have to interrupt because actually none of that's happening I don't know if you've <laughs> oh noticed. i forgot <laughs> yeah no I don't, I don't know if you've noticed um ben white who's a, a reporter over at politico notes there's a lot of hand-wringing over anti-catholic anti-faith attacks on the scotus nomination but i've not seen any evidence of this happening to which no. congressional bureau chief john bresnahan replied it's not happening it's a phony issue um when he was pressed on this he, you know, retreated uh, to the Bailey, said, you know, that the notion that Democrats hate Catholics is just insane and nonsense, uh, which is a much more defensible position than the one that he struck out, which was that the, all this evidence of attacks on this woman's faith, on her family, on her, um, the way she organizes her life uh, around uh, a, a religious understanding of how to how social organization works, you know that's just not happening. So I I challenge your premise. Oh, it's not only that it's not happening, Abe. Uh, as far as I understand, how can you say that the um, let's say the the social tendency that backs Biden uh, could be anti? I mean, Biden's a Catholic, right? So and Nancy Pelosi is a Catholic. Mm-hmm. So how can they be anti-Catholic? Well, you know what? I would put it this way. They're not anti-Catholic. Lib- American liberalism is not anti-Catholic. It's anti-religion. <laughs> they don't like any religion. They don't like Protestant religion. They don't like they don't like Orthodox Judaism. They don't like serious Catholicism. This is a secularist tendency in American life that is leaning ever more heavily into secularism as a as a substitute faith and and um well they like yeah they like all religion actually so long as it's repurposed to political ends yeah then 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 all religion is great jewish tikkun olam absolutely uh you know uh, catholic uh, dorothy day catholic social conscience justice um you know uh, all of that, but of course the other form of of of, uh, of social action on the part of, of religious groups like um, like the efforts toward uh, adoption, feeding kids in in uh, in Africa and others taken up by evangelical Christians is totally put by the wayside. So I I, I think that there is a it's a it's a larger point that is being made a giant. American point that if, you know, that we will see over the next 15 to 20 years hardens into a reality, which is that the Democratic Party loosely defined is going to be the party of no faith. 
And the Republican Party is going to be the party of faith. And the question that is going to be is going to be raised by this is what happens to minority groups of faith in a world in which this is increasingly evidently the case? What happens to African-Americans who are deeply invested in their faith? What happens to Hispanics who are deeply invested in their faith, uh, whose clear political tendency is toward the left and toward the Democrats? But if, if the hostility keeps growing and mounting of the sort that we saw in the wake of the Obamacare decision and the decision to go hard at the notion that, ca- that, that Catholics had to supply free uh, contraception, for example, which was madness, political madness on their part. And I don't, and, and it goes to one other point. I'm sorry to, to monologize here, but um, after uh, the announcement, uh, Jeff Tubin got on CNN and he went into this fascinating diatribe against Dianne Feinstein, uh, who is the ranking Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee and was um, for uh, the way she handled Amy Coney Barrett's hearing to be a circuit court judge. And he said she made Barrett into a hero by her incredibly lame and incompetent questioning. Those are his words, not mine. Uh, Raising questions about her faith uh, with this this now infamous phrase, the dogma lives, is it deep? Loudly. Loudly, loudly, loudly right. Right. And that he then basically said that Dianne Feinstein is senile and cannot be allowed to manage the Democratic response to Amy Coney Barrett when the hearings begin next week because she did such a bad job the first time. And now it is understood that she's lost a few steps and she doesn't really know what she's doing and they should move her to the Intelligence Committee before she does anything really bad, which... Now, Diane Feinstein, are you then going to say, oh, well, you know, the Democrats aren't anti-religion. Diane Feinstein is Jewish. Well, yeah, so what? I mean, I'm just saying it's an interesting... Yeah, but it's it's not it's not honest. Um, really, it would be no. It, it would be if if Diane Feinstein was the only person who did this during her Seventh Circuit uh, confirmation hearings. She was not. Um, Maisie Morono raised several issues along these lines. Sheldon Whitehouse raised several issues along these lines. Uh, Republicans talked about her Catholicism, although albeit more approvingly. Um, this was hardly something that was limited to Diane Feinstein. She just took it farther. Second, the people who are you know, clamoring over Diane Feinstein's competence here. Don't want less of that. They want more of it. No, I this think they want that, no. the proceduralists don't. The proceduralists who think this is a dumb strategy don't. The grassroots does. The grassroots thinks she's a menace okay, and that she's, she's insufficiently committed to uh, American doctrines along uh, about separation of church and state. They they want to highlight her religiosity. Well, this is this is why it's it's as a as a political question. This nomination will be. F- fascinating to watch I, the way i saw it kind of playing out on social media yesterday was somebody somebody put in stark relief you know a picture of of amy coney barrett's beautiful family and then a bunch of writers on the street and they're like well which is it going to be you know acb or acab so amy coney barrett or all cops or bastards i mean there's a sense in which the grassroots and this is where Biden, what biden chooses to do and he's going to speak later today evidently from delaware how Biden chooses to handle this and how Kamala Harris, who sits on the Judiciary Committee, chooses to handle this will be, I hope, closely watched by the American public before they go to the polls. Okay, so Abe, here's where I think they're going to go based on what I was hearing yesterday and what I'm reading. 
which is that um, they want to make, they want, they've decided that doing what Noah says the grassroots wants is, is not wise. Uh, and probably she's going to get on the court anyway. Mm-hmm. So what can they do to make political hay out of this moment? And I think intelligently what they've decided is to go at healthcare because on the 10th of November, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on this um, Affordable Care Act challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has already delivered the opinion in a law review article that John Roberts twisted the Constitution and and logic in the uh, Obamacare decision, which should be the least controversial thing ever said because it's self-evidently true since he contradicted himself on page 12 and on page right. 35 of that decision. So they're going to go, they're going to try to use this to just talk at her about healthcare and talk about healthcare and try to make healthcare a major issue in the hearing to reinforce the idea that Biden's good on healthcare. And some of these polls, Obamacare is now getting 60 to 65% support in these poll the polls are out today if you ask favorable or unfavorable opinion that's a 25 point shift since it was since its passage so anyway what do you Um, make of it i think that's true but that's a lot that's going to be a lot of time to just talk about healthcare with her right you know i mean um but i understand why because this is in a sense i mean this they are um so undisciplined or at least the the commentariat is so undisciplined that that they so overshot and went so crazy on their um, attacks on her religion and and the start of attacks on her family um, that uh, that they have now um, sort of um, put themselves in this corner. Um, but that's a that's a whole lot of that's a there's going to be I mean that's a lot of time to focus just on healthcare, don't you think? I mean they're, well, they're going to have to bring up they're going to have to bring up Roe as well, don't you think? Yeah. They're- there will be a lot of things. I don't know how long these confirmation hearings are going to last, but there will be a lot of things that brand. But why Why is that a bad strategy? Democrats focused on, as messaging, Democrats in 2018 focused on health care almost exclusively in a lot of these swing districts. So they talked about health care constantly, only barely talked about Donald Trump, and it was a winning issue for them. I mean, there, anybody who wants to talk about how this is unfair and the, this is it's, the process is terrible here. And, and the people look at the polls. People say that they, they want the next president to do this. If you dig deeper into the polls, they say, you know, like, well, this, this before the Senate, then it's a little different. Um, it's much more of a 50 50 issue. But that seems like the winning strategy here. If the, it, there's no winning, there's no derailing this nomination. But right. as a political messaging strategy, focusing on healthcare seems like it's a, a very effective message. But it's a heavy. I think what Abe. I mean, if Abe, if I'm understanding, it's a, it's going to be a heavy lift for the for during a confirmation hearing to message that in a way that the American public is going to hear as what's the real threat. I mean, they'll say, you know, if you if you put her on the bench, she's going to get rid of Obamacare. They can say that, but there has to be an argument to back it up. And the argument, you know, is technically fairly uh, detailed, right? I think it's much, I think that's why you see the commentary and the activist class not even getting close to that. They're saying things like, A, she should never have accepted the nomination. Oh, she's terrible. What about her? Oh, she has no experience, even though Elena Kagan had zero days of experience on any as a judge before she was nominated. I mean, they're, they're kind of flailing around. And I just wonder, the question is, what message will the public here and are Senate Democrats really capable of making that message in a way that's going to land? 
Well, I think they can make some part of it. It's all a question of what you stress. Are you going to stress the culture war or are you going to stress the policy? Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that historically, nominees for the Supreme Court can say, I cannot talk about X issue because it might come before the court and I do not want to... That was Kagan's entire response (laughs) to every question. Everybody has said this for 30 years, like since basically since Bork made the mistake or they made a calculated decision that they had to talk about philosophy and sort of explain away his his uh, his detestation of Griswold versus Connecticut uh, in order to get him through the hearing. And it was a terrible blunder because it really did it really did sort of like alter precedent in the way these nominations were handled, where Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is a third body of government. It has its own way of doing things. It's it's um, and and you you cannot ask somebody to talk about a, a current hot button issue because um, they will be they will it will appear that they are prejudging an issue that will come before them. Um, she can try to say it uh, because she is on the record having written things before her uh, judicial career. You know, she can't really say, well, I can't really talk to that. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the culture war stuff is very tricky in ways that I did not anticipate and that the policy stuff is therefore much more accessible given the, given the, what all the data are telling us about how pretty good the general atmosphere is for the kinds of arguments Biden is making in but, terms you know, of, yeah. I just, but I think, you know, this comes up a lot in that um, I think you often see that conservative uh, judges and, and uh, candidates um, have a way of slipping through uh, Democrats' fingers on the policy stuff because there's this kind of this assumption uh, among liberals that a conservative justice would be a conservative activist um, in the way that we uh, have come to expect um, liberal judges to be, that they would sort of enact policy. Um, and they get it wrong every time because we, what it really means to, uh, to be a, a conservative judge or conservative justice is that you it's, it's about being faithful to the law in spite of whatever your own um, pref- policy preferences would, would be. And, and I, there's no doubt in my mind that um, Amy Barrett is well-versed in how to talk about that and mean it. Right. right. But so the, the culture war stuff, if she came across as stiff, if she, if she came across as unpleasant or, you know, uh, problematic, emo- somebody that people couldn't connect to emotionally, let's say, uh, that this would be a different story, but that was why her appearance yesterday was so dazzling, and why, when you look at it, I think, without an ideological prism, you you have to understand what what danger is posed by the kinds of questions that Noah, you're absolutely right. You know, liberal activists would want to be asked of her, and the kind of filibustering that Senate liberal Senate. Senate Democrats would be most comfortable throwing at her, um, which is she's like a mom with a lot of kids and a pretty good marriage. And she seems 
pleasant and nice and she's got a uh, you know a special needs kid she's adopted two kids generally speaking unless your mind is made up that you hate all conservative jurists which may make up a certain percentage of the electorate what are you going to dislike about her what is there to dislike about her how can they make her dislikable it was very clear how they made Kavanaugh dislikable Right, they said he was a disgusting. But frat we didn't boy. know. But we didn't know that at this point. No, we didn't. Was... No, we didn't. But I'm saying that uh, Kavanaugh himself did not present as anything particularly. You know, he just seemed like a. He was a literal choir boy. Yeah, but <laughs> but he was not. There was nothing. There was nothing exciting about Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, socially, culturally, nothing. That's the key, isn't that? So that's why you had to create this scenario in which he was a, a right. secret sociopath right but so that's so so that follows this template no we have no idea what's coming well that's why the handmaiden thing was the first attempt to do that right the idea that she's actually you know enthralled to some patriarchally oppressive faith that's that's guiding her every movement i mean it's it's very illuminati yes but there you go there's a percentage of people i actually you know what i really want to see because the other thing i've been seeing is oh this is going to be amazing kamala harris who's just a a former prosecutor is going to slice and dice her i'm like oh bring it because you know what amy coney barrett will eat kamala harris's lunch in a yeah. <laughs> but everybody forgets how terrible she was She's during the awful. Okay, she was but, really quite bad nobody no. knows what happened at that secret meeting we still don't know what happened at the secret meeting at benson torres and uh whatever the last name was of the the partnership where they he was supposedly conspiring with trump's lawyers to do something we don't know what right this but, was this was this was gold on social media Right. Activists lapped this up. It was her right. moment. It was but, part of what launched her, her her presidential bid. Right. But my point is, either this is going to be a huge news story. The hearings are either going to be a huge news story, in which case Biden and the Democrats are more in danger than, than, than one might think. Because uh, if they look like they're looking for any angle to be nasty to her personally – independent suburban women may really not like that is all I'm saying. You know, whereas if they go at her solely on issues where the polling suggests that the independent suburban women are kind of more leaning toward the Biden set of issues and leave her alone and don't get anywhere near her family or her faith, they might score some hits and reinforce Biden's general electoral message. But if they, um, if they succumb to the temptation of their id, of the party's id, and go exactly there, which is what everybody wants and what Republicans want too, because they want to see how Amy Barrett says, it's very hurtful, Senator, or, you know, I, I just don't know why we why you had to go there with that senator. My faith is very important to me as it is to so many people. You know, whatever. I don't know. I mean, you can sort of make up ten thousand lines, but the whole point is that Biden wants to say I'm the not crazy person, and we're going to go through the election. And I'm going to win, and I'm going to lower the temperature in the country, and everything isn't going to be hysterical. 
And if they are like, you are a robot of, uh, you know, evil Catholic, evil Catholic conspiracy who is stealing Haitian children and putting them in the basement with evil babysitters while you, while you minister to your husband as a handmaid, the, if there is an electoral consequence to this hearing, that is not going to help them. Yeah, I, everybody I, who believes that is already going to vote for Biden. So I'm I'm willing to put money on the table that Maisie Hirono will go there. Maisie um, Hirono is not going to go the hearing. I thought she, oh, oh, she's, she's going to change night. her mind. She's going to change right. her mind. Richard Blumenthal and Maisie Hirono both said they were going to boycott the hearing because yeah. it's illegitimate. But they're like the celebrities who say they're going to move to Canada when Trump was elected. It's okay. not going to happen. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be shocked to see a politician seat a microphone. Um, nevertheless. The story of this election so far has been that voters are able to compartmentalize Joe Biden from his party. They do not believe Joe Biden is a vessel for the radicalism that his party evinces on a daily basis. They have never seemed to believe that no matter how many times we say it and how many times we think it, how many times we say, look, there's, you know, you can draw this line and that line and they intersect pretty clearly. Um, Voters don't seem to believe that. So no matter how crazy they go in this hearing, I don't think it redounds to Joe Biden's uh, detriment in part because he can distance himself from it. He's been able to distance himself from, from but, some of this great stuff. But if they make her look great, it could help Trump. Look, these not have to answer it on Tuesday. Trump will bring it up in the debate. Right. Well, well, they'll bring it up in the debate. And he's talking today. Uh, this is Sunday morning that we're speaking. So chances are for a lot of people, you're going to hear us talking about this after Biden speaks. So I'm not it's ridiculous for me to predict what Biden's going to say. But either today or th- or Tuesday, if he says, I'm a man of faith, I'm a Catholic, my Catholicism is very important to me as it is to Amy Coney Bryant, let's talk Barrett, excuse me. I did the Bryant thing too, the William Cullen Bryant thing. Amy Coney Barrett, let's leave religion out of this. She's bad because she wants to, she wants to overturn Obamacare and Roe v. Wade. And that's why she should not go on the court. That has nothing to do with whether or not that's an argument that will win, but it will resonate. It could resonate if anything's going to resonate. And that's where we'll go to the final point here. All this polling says people say the, uh, you know, the next, the person who wins the presidency should be picking the Supreme Court justice, right? 57, 58, 42, something like that. We have two polls out today that say pretty much the same thing. And there's a lot of aha. You see, Trump's made a terrible mistake. He's made a mistake because the American people think that he, you know, that this should wait. And so it's going to hurt him. But is anybody going to vote on that? That's my, my my ultimate thing is that is is there anyone who's going to go to the polling place and say, you know, because he didn't let this one Supreme Court nomination that doesn't flip the court's ideological balance, by the way, it may deepen the conservative uh, block, but it doesn't, <clears throat> the conservative block is already 5-4. It doesn't flip anything. I'm not going to, I'm going to vote for Biden now. Because he's not didn't let this nomination go into the lame duck session or whatever, is that real? Like, is is that something that people are going to vote on? I can see how it will help Trump in solidifying some wavering folks or depressed people or something like that who are getting depressed and won't want to turn out to the polls. So it will kind of like stabilize him. But I don't see how people are going to stampede toward Joe Biden because Trump nominated someone in the Senate votes on it. Am I crazy? Abe? No, I think, I think you're right. I, I've, I've thought that the whole time. No, I, that's why, you know, I mean, I thought, uh, 
you know, this was mostly a sort of a, a modest win for Trump the whole way through. Yeah, but I don't even know if it's a win for Trump. No, words, I said modest. Most, I mean, right. It's like mostly nothing. Right. Um, you know, in the end, that this is not, you know, uh, the weird part here is that uh, what we could see, and we've been talking about this for a while, after this is over, is whether judges, let's say Biden wins, Barrett goes on the court, Biden wins. Judges could become a major issue for the left, the kind of issue for the left the judges have been for the right really since the mid seventies. We've been anticipating that for so right. long, and it just it fails to materialize. Um, just they have a different view of what the courts are supposed to do than than conservatives do. Conservatives fundamentally view the court, and, and again, we've been. I was critical of of this part of the conservative movement during the Trump presidency, which overemphasized judges because it seeds the legislative field. It's essentially saying you this this and no further. But it doesn't change the the uh, statutory um, the statutes that the court is interpreting and um, in- ensuring that they don't overinterpret them, which is what the left wants to see the courts do. So, no, but, that, just, but that's uh, why. That's exactly why. See, <clears throat> once Roe was decided, and Roe really created the modern, the world of modern American conservative politics in a way that people still under underappreciate because they still think it's about race. But Roe was the moment at which the parties really started to diverge spectacularly on what courts should or should not be able to do. And conservatives said they've been arguing for 50 years that the court is a runaway second legislature and they are they are doing things and deciding things that they have no business and no right to decide. If Biden ends up as the president and there are, you know, solid, uh, you know, and the uh, Democrats have the Senate or can get the Senate in 20, whatever. The argument that the court, that Trump has now pushed the court into being an unelected legislature that vetoes Democratic desiderata in a way that is totally illegitimate, they will raise the same kind of money that Republicans have raised on the courts, and they can use this to motivate and drive turnout and grassroots and all of that by saying, if we do X, we can change this around through Y. They've already been doing that for decades. They've just been doing it on an issue oriented basis, right? Right. That's what Planned Parenthood does. That's what, I mean, they they do, it's either about abortion or it's about, you know, they they do it based on an issue based uh, way. And, but look, that's all, but I agree with Noah. That's always been the, the liberal approach to the courts is that they can legislate the stuff that it, our actual legislature can't pass, right? They've, they've done that over and over again in very important yeah. cases. Um, and, you know, the, the conservative effort to, to, to slow that tide has been successful. There was an, some a New York Times Siena poll today, um, which showed what every other poll shows that uh, between uh, people want the next president to appoint this justice to the tune of 56 to 41 percent. However, the following question in the survey, Donald Trump selected, if Donald Trump selects a nominee for the Supreme Court, um, do you think the Senate should or should not act on the nomination? It's much closer. 47 percent say they should. 48 percent say they should not. Statistically negligible. So it's the issue being before the Senate is different than this theoretical notion of whether Donald Trump should have the right to appoint another justice. He obviously does, but people just don't like Donald Trump. And that is the paradigm right. that they're they're evaluating that question on. Whether the Senate should perform its constitutional duties, 
here is is much more it splits along partisan lines, obviously, but it is a 50-50 proposition. Okay, it's also a fundamental civic literacy issue here, right? Which is, you say, should Donald Trump choose the, choose the, the, you say this, and then it's like, should the Senate do X? And you're like, no, the Senate should do Y, because people don't know that the Senate does anything. <laughs> people don't know that the Senate approves. Well, the, they I, don't, so I don't think, he, it's I don't think that's actually how little people. So, but I'm, what I'm saying is, I don't think that's how to evaluate this question. The issue here is, and one of the, one of the big things that Democrats mm-hmm. want to make an issue here is this is Republican hypocrisy, rank naked hypocrisy over whether or not we should vote uh, to confirm a nominee in an election year. Now all of a sudden it's because, well, one party controls the White House, one party controls the Senate. It's, it's, it's hypocrisy. And we can agree that it's hypocrisy. But that if that poll result is to be believed, the hypocrisy line isn't cutting through. Right. But it's not coming through because it's too, it's too granular. You're talking about people who don't know what the Senate does and what the president does and what anybody does. So you say to them, should Donald Trump choose X? And you're like, no. Then it's like, should there be a process according to which the Senate votes on this? And they're like, some people say no and some people say yes, because of that, that number shifts by 10 percentage points, which is like 20%, because those 20% don't have any idea what the hell happens and how things happen. If they actually believe what they believed in question one, question two should be a no-brainer. They should pretty much answer it in exactly the same way. You're saying that there's a kind of sophisticated reason for that, and I'm saying it's the opposite. It is a total polar opposite, which is why these hearings don't necessarily have any political impact. Because even though we just saw this two years ago with this horrible Kavanaugh monstrous mess, people have already forgotten that the Senate advises and consents. I promise you that if you did a poll, it's like, Jay Leno, the jaywalker, you know, the people that when you ask questions on TV shows, you know, who they, they don't even know who Mike Pence is. 50% of Americans practically probably don't know who Mike Pence is, much less know about the Senate's role in advising and consenting. Because they're stupid. And- no, we need to bring Schoolhouse Rock back. You know, I'm just a bill on right. so for every branch. We need a yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Christine, but every 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 school child doesn't need to read the Constitution. They need to read Ibram X. Ken, Henry Rogers Kendi uh, and his uh, and his how to be an anti racist uh, vile a vile tweet. I I, really yeah. would, I anyone who thinks that that man is anything but a racist himself should read what he wrote about Amy Coney Barrett yesterday. Yeah. Paul, yeah, like, yeah. Paul, she's a, I, yeah. I adore this guy. His honesty <laughs> is so refreshing and so helpful. Um, <laughs> this is a this is the philosophy. This it, we have been approaching benign racial segregation on the left as being some sort of a, a benefit uh, to society for a long, long time, and it's about time somebody very prominent came out and said as much. Yeah, but you know I, what? He's not that honest. Just to, not to give his tweet too much attention, but. Down in the thread after he, you know, tweeted about the um, sort of white supremacy of adoption, um, someone someone said, "Well, then, um, if uh, a, a family wants to adopt a child and has zero interest, no preference about the the child's race, is that racist or anti-racist?" And he said, "That's an interesting question, but it's not one to take up on Twitter." Which is where, of course, he launched his Raise whole... Raise the question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. By the way, so I, I, I just... 
not to get too personal, but uh, we have a family friend who adopted a, a child from Haiti. And I, I should tell you that this, was, n- this is, was not an easy process, adopting a child from Haiti. Haiti is not just, you know, like, here, take our children and, 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 and be done with it. There is a, there is a, an, it's an arduous process to adopt a child from Haiti that involves multiple trips, visits, you know, uh, various things that can take a year, a year and a half. We don't really know the circumstances under which, for example, her son, John Peter, who was three, came to her after the earthquake in Haiti. Like, does that mean that his family, that, that he had been in an orphanage to begin with and the orphanage, you know, was without power, whatever, or did family members who were taking care of him die and he was therefore left parentless? We don't know the circumstances, well, but um, well, the vileness of this is that it's not like, oh, I'll just, I'll just grab a kid from Haiti. You know, that, that is not the way these adoptions work at all. And it's, you know, psychotically offensive. You have to be deeply committed to doing this to do it. And it's also, it's also psychotically offensive because you're, you know, um, you're dredging up all this garbage about a kid who is a kid currently um, and you're doing this in in the in the in the public and about him and his life and his family. It's also psychotically offensive because it's the definition of racist. Yep. We're seeing people as the color of their skin and judging their entire life experiences around that. That's is there another definition for bigotry other than that? Well, it's also d- b- d- deeply part of his philosophy, which is it's like oh, people must only be doing this. Because they want to, a white person wants to adopt a black child to shield him or herself from the charge that they are racist. Well, and that was you. That that actually has been used on yeah. the activist left already to to say that Amy Coney Barrett's family standing up behind her in support of her nomination is actually just a human shield, right? Because she has a special needs kid and because she's adopted these two black kids, that's just being used in this instrumental way. I mean, it does show you the toxic mindset of a certain subset of activist lefties how they would look at that family and that's their go-to is it's it makes me sad i actually have a lot of pity for people who think that way because that's an unhappy way to see the world he was not the first to say this he might be the most prominent to say this but he was hardly the first um nor is uh he the people who said it just completely random people on social media we we saw this message being road tested by democratic strategists perhaps not especially prominent democratic strategists but nevertheless people who wear that mantle have consulted for candidates and uh, have attachments to the democratic party all of a sudden this message just sort of just appeared and then everybody was on the same page on this part of the activist left I, the notion here that this just was some sort of collective epiphany uh, on on the part of uh, a certain type of activist, it just defies uh, common sense. Okay, you know? but There's we should we should really name. Some, we should. I don't name think that this here. is a coordinated effort. That's not what I'm alleging. No, but we I'm, should. I we am should, saying that this is in the ether. We should name names here because we're referring to someone named Dana Hooley, who was some kind of Democratic political consultant, like did various campaigns that apparently went nowhere, and worked on Capitol Hill. And she's the one who said, "I want to know what adoption agency let her have these children." Um, we then have Vanessa Gregoriadis, who is a uh, who is one of the most successful magazine profile writers in the in the United States. The author of a particularly bad book about um, 
that Christine, I think you wrote about for us, didn't you? About or or uh, maybe I'm I'm confusing. There's another things. New York Magazine writer. No, but, another, no, but another third wave feminist type. Yeah. No, but she wrote a a book about college uh, about the um, college sex scandals and stuff. Again, maybe I guess it wasn't you. Um, uh, but she's like she was a New York Magazine person, New York Times Magazine, Vanity Fair. One of the very few people left in America who makes her living as a as a as a writing journalist writing big long profiles and she said how can she be a good mother while being a member of the you know but while being a judge if she has seven children i just would just so like the most to know offensive, that. no but the most offensive thing that vanessa gregorius did is compare amy coney barrett to kim kardashian she said oh she right. must have like nannies hidden away in the closet and then pretends yeah. to draw the bath for her kids right it's ridiculous no but there's you get whiplash following feminism these days because that's basically the 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 message of that tweet was shouldn't she be at home with her kids i mean it's it's bizarre bizarre yeah. right and so, and then we have Sarah Jones uh, uh, of uh, New York Magazine, who wrote for. I really first noticed her writing for the some you know horrendous, horrific iteration of the New Republic. I don't know which one, you know, New Republic, uh, the Seventh New Republic, uh, or or something. Um, uh, a person I would say of uh, somewhat limited uh, intelligence who said this uh, thing on Twitter and then has written a longer piece where she said, Amy Cody Barrett is not um, at least Elena Kagan uh, was uh, the Dean of Harvard law school and solicitor general. So she had a lot of experience. Amy Cody Barrett has only been on the, uh, only on the circuit court for three years. So she doesn't have enough experience. Law school professor for 15 years, Supreme court clerk, uh, circuit court clerk. Uh, that's a lot of experience. Uh, has written over a hundred opinions in the last three years. You know, a lot of law review articles. So it's like, you know what, you idiot, shut the hell up. You don't know. You literally don't know what you're talking about. Elena Kagan had never been a judge in a courtroom when she became when she ended up on the Supreme Court, which is totally fine, right? And now she's written a piece in which she argues that. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett is a traitor to her gender, or excuse me, a traitor to her sex, which is an interesting use of phraseology because the traitor to her blank was something that was said of Franklin Delano Roosevelt after the New Deal, where uh, rock-ribbed rich Republicans claimed that because he was a supporter of you know higher taxation, he was a traitor to his class. So the phrase traitor to his blank or traitor to her blank has a terrible provenance in American political history, which Sarah Jones, being an idiot, has no you know fundamental idea. And her piece basically says, "See, Barrett is following Phyllis Schlafly, where you know they 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 uh, they saw the main chance of arguing against women as a woman, and this is how they made it. And feminists now have to follow them, right?" Here's and here's what she, here's how she concludes. This is going to crack you up. Schlafly and her housewives help remake the GOP. Feminists must do the same to the party of Joe Biden. No compromise on abortion. No compromise on trans rights. No compromise on matters of economic justice like a living wage and paid leave. If that sounds too risky, remember the stakes and something else too. Public opinion is not on the side of the conservative movement. The future is there for feminists and the left to win. Okay, where's the compromise on abortion? <laughs> In the Democratic Party, where has where, where has there been any compromise on trans rights? 
Where is there any compromise on living wage and paid leave? These are all like these are all like hardened Democratic Party orthodoxies. What what door are feminists pushing on that isn't open, according to Sarah Jones? You know why she writes this? Because she's an idiot. But this is a major post she's in. She's one of the political commentators of intelligence or New York magazine. This is a position that was held by Michael Kramer, was held by John Taylor, was held by uh, you know, very uh, Andrew Sullivan, but held by various people who are like serious thinkers and great reporters on politics and public policy. And here she is opening a mouth like a moron. However, that doesn't mean that just because she's a moron, this is not an influential view that is going to be something that will be taken up on. Like we need to be more like Amy Coney Barrett and demand that the democratic party do what the Demo has been in the democratic party platform now for like eight, 10, 20, 50, 2000 years. Good. Go with, you know, Go in good health. Okay, so any any other major points we need to hit on this uh, on this uh, signature day? Uh, could I, I'll just point out that yesterday, tens of thousands of Americans descended on Washington D.C. to for National Prayer Day, and there was no harassment of diners and no rioting and no no general upset caused by that group. It's amazing how people can actually follow the Constitution's protected right to peacefully assemble and do their thing. Um, and yet, there you go. So I'm just saying it is possible for lots and lots of people to get together who feel very strongly about something and not destroy the city that they're in. Yeah, so um, along those lines, Kevin Williamson has a particularly uh, acerbic, but in a good way, uh, piece in National Review along these lines, <clears throat> which posits something that um, shouldn't be outside the realm of, uh, of a discourse, polite discourse here, but seems to be which is the President Trump's remark about a peaceful transition being as uh, atrocious as it is and as worthy of censure as it is, um, allied sort of the conditions under which we're living right now. Republicans are compelled to forever renounce violence. And when they gather in large numbers, it is always a riot. But we are seeing riots everywhere. And at no point are Democrats compelled to renounce violence as a political tactic or to renounce extremism as a political tactic. In fact, they're, they've rather uh, nakedly embraced it over the course of uh, the week that has elapsed since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And there is a disparity here, which is hard to ignore, which is that the press seems to think that Republicans are uniquely capable of violence, all evidence to the contrary notwithstanding, and that Democrats are um, are sort of hostages, if, if at all, to the, these currents on, on their fringes, but are no means responsible for them. Well, by the way, also along those lines, so uh, yesterday the, the Proud Boys, who I have no interest in and no interest in defending and want no part of, um, had held some uh, sort of rally in uh, Portland. And all the stories were, up. Oh, Portland braces for violence. The Proud Boys are coming out. The Proud Boys are going, because they're right-wingers. Um, suddenly... Portland's now bracing for violence. Um, meanwhile, the, the the Proud Boys did their thing, and it was, I think, uh, uneventful entirely. But the violence that they were bracing for wasn't from Proud Boys. Right. It was from the response, That's right. Proud, which is what happened in Manhattan a couple of years ago when Proud Boys showed up at, uh, I think, New York Historical Society. Or the something. Manhattan Republican yeah. Club. Republican that was a Manhattan fight Republican between. Club, yeah. That was a fight between the Manhattan Republican Club right. and these. Psychotic children. Um, Talk about a Brooks Brothers riot. Yeah. Um, 
I, uh, uh, meanwhile, in Seattle last night, uh, there is this astounding footage of, um, of, a, of a scene of a, of a couple of cars popping wheelies and doing, driving around and hitting people with their, with their car in some square. Um, and their cops never show up because they're too busy down by Chaz and Chop, which apparently are, seem to be reconstituting themselves where people are setting fires and starting to riot again. Because I don't know if you know this, but um, uh, four months ago, uh, George Floyd was, uh, you know, was, was killed in, in Minneapolis. So four months later, they're setting a fire in a trash can on the port because this is, you know, uh, so, so deeply, uh, deeply important. Um, we, uh, having said all this politically, again, if you look at these polls, Trump's law and order message did not work. Both polls, both Washington Post and and the New York Times, have Biden outdistancing Trump on who can best maintain law and order by ten points. Um, and that is a that is an interesting. So basically, Trump will win not on the basis of any panoply of issues that is going to help him. He is going to win if he wins based on a general cultural understanding of who he is and who Biden is, that uh, the issues don't really uh, seem to penetrate, even though they're ultimately just as uh, we're all slaves of some defunct economists, all of this is backed by issues. It's all, everything is, everything is controlled by issues and what you think of Trump and what you think of Biden and what you think of the, the next four years. Uh, but Trump's ability to harness issues in his favor is now, you know, conclusively, I think, disproven. Like he had, he had an open field here on law and order. And, and as uh, I think we all agreed, he, you know, then this week he stepped in it with the, with the, I'm not necessarily, you know, don't expect me. I, I'm not going to say we need a peaceful transfer of power thing, which is just, as Noah said, the, you know, ultimate negation of his, 2020 strategy chaos agent chaos agent so with that but if you're just just like chaos you don't support the guy you perceive to be an agent of that chaos yeah but i will say this if trump loses in november uh his legacy will be the three supreme court justices that we will he will put on the supreme court but what will matter about him 25 years from now will be gorsuch Kavanaugh, and assuming she is confirmed Bar- uh, Barrett. And the Middle East deal. Right. And the Middle and, East, thank you. Right. And the Middle East deal. Absolutely. I'm sorry. That's so th- those are those are very big. It's very big, and it's all very big. And we won't even get to the point of, like, how any Republican president would have chosen Amy Coney Barrett. In fact, chances are any Republican would have chosen her before Kavanaugh. Although I gather the deal. These people were not on the list. Who? Remember the 2016 list? Yeah. I, I don't even think Gore was Gorsuch on the list. Yeah, Gorsuch was. I'm pretty sure Gorsuch okay. was on. The Kavanaugh list. wasn't, and yeah. I don't think Amy Coney Barrett wasn't. Right. You know, this is like Ben Sass lobbying very hard for the last two years. Yeah. Anyway, here we are. So with that, thank you, Ben Sass. So um, for uh, everyone uh, within the sound of my voice who is uh, observing Yom Kippur, have an easy fast, and may you be inscribed for a good year. And for everybody else, have a great <laughs> time. Enjoying, enjoying your meals that some of us are not going to be eating. 
And we'll be back to you on Tuesday with a debate preview. So uh, for Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz with this very special, our first very special commentary magazine weekend podcast. Keep the candle burning.